Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, The Temple and Me. You know, for the past several months and even years now, a number of my listeners have reached out to me and asked me if I would share with the audience my first experience going through the LDS Temple for my Temple Endowment and describe what that experience was like. Well, I will tell you up front that I know that many members of the church, especially lifetime members of the church, have an extremely negative experience the first time they go through the LDS temple. But my first time going through the temple was really not negative. In fact, if anything, it was probably positive overall. I think there's a reason that I had this reaction to the temple as compared with many other members of the church who have a negative reaction going to the temple. And tonight, I want to talk a little bit about why it was that I think that I had the experience I had the first time I went through the temple. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to give you a little background information on me in order to help explain that. As listeners to this program know, I was baptized into the church in June of 1978, fresh out of high school. I was 18 years old. I was baptized by my best friend, Bruce. And Bruce had been my best friend since we moved into a new house in a new town in ninth grade in the fall of 1974. My family had spent my first six or so years in Washington State, moving from rental house to apartments, then to a different set of apartments. We were here, there, and everywhere. And of course, every time we moved, I was going to a new school in a new school district and having to do my best to make new friends. But in the fall of 1974, my parents bought a house a number of miles south of where we lived in Kent, Washington, in a town called Sumner, Washington, and that's where we set down roots. And that is where we lived from fall of 1974, once again the beginning of my ninth grade, all the way through the fall of 1979, which actually meant that we lived in that one house in Sumner, Washington, the longest period of time that I had ever been in any one location. So I started to go to school in this new Sumner School District at the beginning of my ninth grade. I made a number of friends after a while. It's always a somewhat slow and painful process. But one of the friends that I made was Bruce. We had a number of classes together. We had a similar sense of humor, which would best be described as perhaps mildly deranged, and we hit it off. During these years that I knew Bruce, he took every opportunity to try to introduce me, as he did to the rest of his friends, to the LDS Church. He was a TBM, a true believing Mormon. Even among TBMs, Bruce was a TBM. He took his responsibility as a Mormon to do missionary work very seriously, with the result that over time a number of his friends, including yours truly, ended up joining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have described my conversion experience elsewhere, so I will not repeat that here. But I ended up joining the LDS Church in June of 1978. Once again, Bruce baptized me, and I went through the temple the following year in November of 1979. The reason I went through the temple in November of 1979 was, of course, because I was going on a mission. In fact, I had already started my mission by the time I went to the temple for the first time. Now, this is a little bit uncommon. Most members of the church, when they get their mission call, they will go to the temple prior to entering the missionary training center to take out their endowment, to receive their endowment ritual and the names, signs, tokens, and obligations that go along with the endowment ceremony. And like most missionaries, Bruce also went to get his endowment prior to going into the MTC. We lived in Sumner, Washington, which is in the general Seattle area. There was no temple 
in Seattle at the time. In fact, it was only under construction. It would not be dedicated until the following year of 1980, if memory serves. And therefore, the closest temple to Seattle at the time was the temple in Idaho Falls. So Bruce went with some members of his family to the temple in Idaho Falls, got his endowment prior to going into the MTC. Now, for a little bit more context, Bruce got his mission call at roughly the same time that I got my mission call. We were in the same class together in school. We were roughly the same age. We both went into the MTC at approximately the same time. In fact, Bruce went into the MTC three weeks before I went into the MTC. We were not, however, called to the same mission, so we did not see each other very much at the MTC. We did bump into each other every now and again, mostly when there were meetings that involved all the missionaries getting together to listen to perhaps a visiting general authority in the large conference room that they have at the MTC. So let me tell you a little story about our mission calls. First off, Bruce and I were the only two people in the entire school who completed four years, all four years, of German, by which I mean the German language. Back when I was going to school, it was a requirement for graduation that you had to have at least two years of a foreign language. The foreign languages that were taught were the standard three at the time. They were Spanish, French, and German. I knew I had to start taking some kind of foreign language class, so I flipped a coin and I came up with German. My dad knew a little bit of German and that may have played into my decision. He had studied German during World War II as part of his job in the Pentagon where he dealt with something to do with intelligence. So naturally, learning some German was important in that field. But that is the only reason that I can think of why I came down with the idea of taking German as opposed to French or Spanish. But I enrolled in first year German in ninth grade when I hit the ground in Sumner Junior High School. Every foreign language class had four years that could be taken. And if you were ever going to take all four years, you had to start as a freshman in ninth grade, of course. But that is one class that Bruce and I shared was first year German, where we learned such important expressions as Ist die Post offen, Otto? Nein, sie ist am Samstag geschlossen. Which roughly translated into English would mean, is the post office open, Otto? Answer, no, it is closed on Saturday. I can actually remember that line from ninth grade. So Bruce and I continued. We continued, we took first year, then we took second year in 10th grade, second year German, third year in 11th grade, and finally fourth year German in 12th grade as seniors. By the time we got to our 12th grade, Everybody else, all the other members of the class who had commenced first year German with us in ninth grade had fallen to the wayside or moved or something had happened to them. And Bruce and I were the only two students left standing who continued to take German all the way through the fourth year. We weren't the only two people in the class. There were other seniors who were taking third year German and we were there with them and we had sort of special lessons that we had to do in addition to what the third year students were doing. Now, I told you that story to tell you this story. Once I got baptized into the church and then it became readily apparent and incumbent upon me to serve a mission, Bruce and I went through the steps of putting in our papers for our mission somewhere around the beginning of 1979. We had to go into a doctor and get a physical and we had to fill out a bunch of paperwork that we then submitted to the church so they could figure out where it was that we would be called on our mission 
and then extend the calling in letter form by the United States mail. One of the questions in the paperwork was whether we had studied any foreign language, and both Bruce and I were happy to put down that yes, we had completed four years in German. It struck me as somewhat curious, even at the time, that if these callings were being done by direct revelation from God, as I had no doubt that they were, and indeed as I was taught that they were, why it was that God needed to know from me that I had completed four years in German. Presumably, God would already know that, wouldn't he? But nevertheless, I, like Bruce, filled out that part of the paperwork that said we had done four years in German. So flash forward to our getting our mission calls. Bruce, who has completed four years in German, gets called to Austria, where they speak, guess what? German, or at least a dialect of German. It's basically German, with maybe a few tweaks and flourishes thrown in. Radio Free Mormon, on the other hand, who submits the same paperwork saying that he also has completed four years in German, gets his mission call not to Germany, not even to Austria, but instead to Japan. And here's a newsflash for you. They do not speak German in Japan. They do not even speak a dialect of German in Japan. Japan is a completely different language from German. And this was only the first of a number of tricks that God would play on Radio Free Mormon throughout his life. And this is the first time I got the impression that God is somewhat of a trickster and why it is that so many religions throughout the world make place for a trickster God in their pantheon. The result of this was that when I was at the MTC for two months, you had to go for two months when you were going to a foreign language speaking mission. I was busting my hump approximately 10 hours every day studying Japanese, whereas Bruce, who was there for two months because he also was called on a foreign speaking language mission, got to kick back and relax and play around for two months because he basically already knew everything about the German language that was being taught to the other missionaries in his district. Now, getting back to the temple, as I mentioned before, Bruce went to the Idaho Falls Temple for his endowment prior to going into the MTC. I was not able to do that. And so things were worked around in such a way that I actually got my mission call and reported to the MTC for duty prior to going to the temple for my endowment. I went to the temple on my first preparation day at the missionary training center after I arrived there and I took out my endowment at the Provo Temple, which is conveniently located just across the street from the missionary training center. So what was going on in my mind prior to entering the temple for the first time in November of 1979 in Provo, Utah. Well, thereby hangs another story, because after Bruce went to the Idaho Falls Temple to get his endowment, he returned from Idaho and talked to me about the experience. Now, of course, what goes on in the temple stays in the temple. It is shrouded in secrecy. We are not supposed to talk as good Mormons about what goes on in the temple outside of the temple. It is considered to be so sacred that what happens inside is kept a secret. And yet Bruce had to tell me in general terms about his experience. And I remember to this day, Bruce recounting to me after getting back from Idaho that he had been absolutely freaked out, I believe was his expression, by what happened inside the temple. So he can't tell me about what happens in the temple. He can't tell me why he was freaked out by what happened in the temple. All he can tell me is that he is freaked out by what happened in the temple. Now, as you might imagine, this caused yours truly some concern. What on earth is going on in the temple that is of such a nature that my best friend, very firmly grounded in Mormonism, once again, a TBM Mormon, if ever there was one, to become freaked out. Well, I cannot readily find out for myself because there are no resources available, at least there were none at the time, to members of the church to help them understand 
what actually goes on inside the temple. I took a temple preparation course, which I believe was 12 classes long. And what I recall is that the temple preparation course, even though it was 12 classes long, did absolutely nothing to prepare me for going through the temple. Now, I had just taken the missionary discussions only a little over a year before prior to getting baptized. So being very well acquainted with the contents of the missionary discussions, I was somewhat surprised to find out that the temple preparation course was largely a rehashing of concepts and ideas that were taught in the missionary discussions. In fact, if memory serves, 11 of the 12 classes actually had nothing to do with the temple at all. It was just covering the basics of the doctrine, teachings, and practices of the LDS Church. The one exception to that rule was a class that did talk about temples in a generic and historical sense. It talked about the Temple of Solomon. It may have talked about the temple in Jesus's time. It may have talked about the temples that were built by the LDS Church. In short, whatever degree it talked about temples was only talking about either history or what goes on outside of temples, not what goes on inside of temples. So the temple preparation course did nothing to prepare me for going to the temple. There were a couple of things that did happen that prepared me for going to the temple in such a way that it did not freak me out the way it did Bruce. The first thing I've already described to you, which is that Bruce told me it freaked him out. Now, when he told me that, I was very concerned. My imagination ran wild. I am envisioning hooded figures in the temple stalking about the corridors and holding in their hands long, pointy, sacrificial daggers. Yes, that is the image that I had in my mind because I have to come up with something sufficiently disturbing to account for the fact that it freaked Bruce out. And so ultimately when I did go to the temple for the first time and found no hooded figures with sacrificial daggers skulking about the hallways or anywhere else in the temple for that matter, I was pleasantly surprised and yes, relieved. So because of Bruce, I went to the temple thinking it was going to be much weirder and much scarier than it actually is. And I think that accounts in some respect for why it was that the temple was, if anything to me, somewhat underwhelming and did not freak me out as it had Bruce. The main thing that worried me when I was going through the temple was not so much what was happening in the endowment ceremony itself, it was the fact that I knew that at the end of the ceremony, there was going to be an examination of all the different names, signs, and tokens that were given to me during the course of the endowment. I knew I was going to have to pass those off at the end of the endowment, and so I was frantically trying to keep in my head all the names, signs, and penalties, the language, the signs, the motions, in order to perform those successfully at the end of the session. And I was okay with the first, and I was somewhat okay with the second, but by the time I got to the third and the fourth, I was getting things hopelessly confused in my head. It was sort of like the pellet with the poisons and the chalice with the palace, the flagon with the dragon has the brew that is true. I expect all Danny K fans will get that reference. So by the time I got up to the veil at the end of the session, I was sure I was not going to be able to pass this off. I was not going to be able to enter through the veil. I was not going to be able to go to the celestial kingdom. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a nice, kindly, elderly gentleman who stood next to me on my side of the veil and helped prompt me by giving me the correct answers when I fumbled the ball. If I had known at the outset that there was going to be somebody at the veil to help me out, I would not have been so frantic and so desperate trying to remember everything during the course of the endowment and keep it memorized. So if anyone from the church temple committee happens to be listening to this podcast, I would make the friendly suggestion that it might be a good idea to include in the opening comments to the temple endowment for people who are going through for the first time a brief explanation to let them know they don't have to keep everything memorized in their head. Calm down, relax. You'll have help at the end if you need it, and you almost certainly will. 
but I'm getting a bit ahead of my story. Let me go back to my preparations for going through the temple. Another thing that helped prepare me for the temple was the fact that I was not raised in the LDS church like Bruce had been. That actually worked against him, I think. And that is because he had racked up a lifetime of going to church and church meetings and early morning seminary and all the different things that you do as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which are so different from what goes on inside the temple. And to put it in broad terms, what goes on outside the temple in the LDS church is virtually devoid of any symbolic content. The LDS church is not like the Catholic church where they have all sorts of different robes and headwear and censers and pomp and circumstance and symbolism. There's lots of symbolism in the liturgy of the Catholic church. There is no similar symbolism in the LDS church. All the meetings are run pretty much like business meetings in the first place. There's certainly no strange kind of garb that's worn. As far as the Mormon church gets in that regard is the men wearing white shirts to church. That's part of the uniform. But other than that, there are business suits, conservative ties, and the women generally dress conservatively as well, with their hemlines below the knee and their shoulders unexposed. The teachings in the LDS church are very literal. They're very direct. And in fact, much of the theology of Mormonism is derived directly from the literalness with which the scriptures are interpreted. As Brigham Young once famously put it, his manner of interpreting the Bible was simply this, the Bible says what it means and it means what it says. And frequently, a literalistic interpretation of the Bible can run into trouble when you get to the last book in the New Testament, the Revelation of John. Because the book of Revelation is entirely symbolic. And so when the literalist mind comes to the book of Revelation, it can make things that are symbolic be interpreted literally, which can make it quite horrific and nightmare-inducing indeed, as it was to me as a small child, and which I've related elsewhere. And coming to the book of Revelation from a literal perspective ends up making the book endlessly confusing. But nevertheless, the tendency is to try and find bits and pieces within the book of Revelation that one can interpret literally, and generally those are the only scriptures that one focuses on in the book of Revelation. For example, from the LDS point of view, Revelation 14.6, where John says he saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto all the inhabitants of the earth, in Mormonism, that becomes a literal teaching, and that angel is given a literal name, and that literal name is Moroni. And that is the literal interpretation from a single passage of a book that is almost completely, if not completely, symbolic. And it's interesting that Mormons came up with the idea that that was Moroni when actually the original teachings of Joseph Smith, if I'm recalling correctly, suggest that he saw that same angel described in Revelation 14.6, not as Moroni, but as Peter. But regardless of whether it's Peter or Moroni, we can see this penchant for literalism manifest in how we view the text. Another place in the book of Revelation that the LDS tend to see as literal is where it talks about the two witnesses who are slain in the streets of Jerusalem and then are raised again after a period of time, much to the astonishment of the lookers-on. So literally has this been taken that the LDS leaders who have commented on this verse, and there are not a lot, there's not a lot of sermons in the LDS church about the book of Revelation, but when they do talk about the book of Revelation, they will talk about either the angel flying in the midst of heaven or these two witnesses, and those two witnesses seem to be invariably understood to be 
apostles of the LDS Church. Who else could it be? It's only the apostles of the LDS Church who are sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators. These are two prophets. Therefore, ergo, they must be prophets or apostles of the LDS Church that the book of Revelation is talking about. And there will be two apostles who are over in Jerusalem who are preaching the gospel, i.e. the restored gospel, who will be slain and then subsequently resurrected before the eyes of all. And in this way, I see the book of Revelation in the Bible as similar to the LDS temple within the Mormon context. Because what goes on in the Mormon temple, in fact, the very temple itself, is awash in symbolism, just as is the book of Revelation. It is not, repeat, not to be understood literally, but it is the natural tendency of Mormons who have been raised in a very literal church that has been bled almost completely dry of symbolism, really. The only symbolism in the LDS church that happens outside the temple is baptism, where there is a ritualistic washing away of sins and a ritualistic burial and resurrection, and in the sacrament that is taken once a week, which we do in remembrance of the blood and flesh of Jesus that he sacrificed for us on the cross. But really, Mormons know it was mostly in Gethsemane. That's where the real atonement took place. But even in this symbolic ordinance of the sacrament, the symbolism has been taken away from it as much as possible. First off, everybody understands in the LDS Church that this is not the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. There is no transubstantiation going on in the LDS Church like in that apostate Catholic Church, right? But not only that, we don't even use wine or grape juice to represent the blood of Christ. Instead, we just use tap water. That's how much the symbolism is bled out of Mormonism outside the temple. So you take a person who's been raised in the LDS church in an extremely literal religion and throw them into the temple for the first time with little to no preparation. And what you're going to have happen is a person going to the temple and being surrounded and participating in ordinances that are entirely symbolic, but the natural result is, is that the Mormon is going to be trying to interpret all this symbolic stuff that's going on in a literal fashion. And I think to a large measure, that accounts for why it was that Bruce was so freaked out the first time he went to the temple. I do not think a person who is raised Catholic, who then converted to Mormonism and went to the temple, would have any problem at all with the temple ordinances because they would be used to the symbolism having it part and parcel of their upbringing within the Catholic tradition. So what I'm trying to get down to is the fact that I think it was a benefit to me the first time going through the temple that I had not been raised as a member of the LDS church, that I had not been going to the LDS church for 18 or 19 years prior to my first experience in the temple, but really only going to the LDS church for a little over one year prior to going to the temple. And another thing that I think helped me a little bit in going through the temple successfully for the first time, i.e. not being freaked out, was my passing acquaintance with symbolism. Now, any acquaintance I had with symbolism really was not through religion. I had not gone to any church in particular prior to joining Mormonism. And once I join Mormonism, I'm going to the regular church meetings where there is little to no symbolism, as I've already talked about. But in high school, I did get a smattering of symbolism. Some of that was in the plays that I was in. I was actually in Hamlet in high school. I got to play Claudius, Hamlet's uncle. And by the way, I think there has never been in the history of Hamlet performances a more wooden and unconvincing Claudius than I was. Nevertheless, it's hard to be in a Shakespeare play without becoming familiar with the language throughout the play. You have to be there not only for your own lines, but also for the lines of others. 
And Shakespeare uses wonderful language, which in many instances is symbolic, representative. It's poetry. And poetry frequently uses metaphor and simile in order to illustrate and communicate ideas and concepts that cannot be communicated through direct literal language alone. It's one of the beauties of it. Now, if you were to take Hamlet, it would be possible to write a dry narrative of what happens in the course of the plot of Hamlet. Of course, it would be much shorter. It would be direct. It would be to the point. It would be quite literal. It would also have no chance of conveying the depth, the breadth, and the scope of the play itself. But Mormons outside the temple are basically dealing in these types of dry narrative structures. And so, of course, when they get thrown into the temple, all hell breaks loose, if you'll pardon the expression. So being exposed to this kind of poetry and metaphor and simile and symbolism was of some help to me. Additionally, one of the classes that Bruce and I took in our senior year together was not only the fourth year of German, but also English class. And it wasn't just English class, it was advanced placement English. Yes, it was AP English. And this is back in the school year 1977 to 1978. And in the little town where we went to school, this was the very first year that Sumner High School had any AP classes in it. It had only one AP class in it, and it was AP English. And so we read a number of books as part of that class. I read as few of those books as I possibly could get away with, which is why I'm trying to make up for a lot of that now later in life, reading the books that I was supposed to read in high school but did not. By the way, earlier this year, I recently completed two of those books. One of those was Siddhartha by Herman Hesse and The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. That's the last book that I just read. For posterity's sake, it is now July of 2020 that I'm recording this. But a few of those books that I did read and did not like at all in advanced placement English, I've got to tell you, were Henderson the Rain King by Saul Bellow. I'm sure I'd like it much more now than I did then. I've got to get around to reading that one as well. And there was a book called As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. And I thought that was just weird. And I did not appreciate that book either, even though these are supposed to be classics. And I'm thinking, what the heck is classic about these books? They're just dumb. Yeah, that was as far... <laughs> yeah, that's how intellectual I was in high school. But I must have read some of the books. And I know that being in Hamlet was helpful because being in the play gave me a great deal of familiarity with the play itself. And I think I put that experience to good use when it came time for the test at the end of the school year, the advanced placement English test. This was a different kind of test from any test I had taken before and all the different members of the class meet. And I think it was on a Saturday morning where we take a proctored text and it was all essay. I do not think there were any multiple choice. I do not recall there being any true or false questions. It was all essay questions and you can hear the collective groan from the class members, can't you? But I did the best I could. I think I did rely a lot on Hamlet, even though Hamlet was not something that we read in advanced placement English class. That was where my familiarity lay, and that was my strong suit, so I led with my strong suit. And I may have tried to tie it in and compare it with other things that I did read in the advanced placement class, but regardless, what ended up happening was that I got the highest score in the class. Now, I never would have known this, except for Bruce. Let me give you a little bit of background. I think it's the same way now, though I could be wrong, is that you take this long test and you end up getting a score which is a one through a five, one being the lowest, five being the highest. This was after school was out now. 
senior years over and the results end up getting mailed back to the various students at their home addresses. And mine came to my address. It was a little slip of paper in an envelope and in the slip of paper there was a little gray box in the middle of it where someone had typed a bit off center the number five. And it seemed so informal. I kind of looked at that and thought, really? Did I get a five? That's incredible. And I was quite shocked and pleasantly surprised, to be frank with you, that I got a five in the advanced placement English class. Now, the only reason I know that I was the only member of the class to get a five is because of Bruce, because Bruce was very into statistics. He did a lot of statistical analyses of different things. He was very into baseball and largely because I think of the statistics that are involved in baseball. I remember his favorite team was the Cincinnati Reds. Pete Rose was playing for them at the time, but Bruce had made it a point to get the phone numbers and contact information for everybody in the AP English class. And he called them all up to find out who got what score. And there were a number of people who got threes. There was a handful of people who got fours. Bruce was among the people who got a four, as well as Eli Esper, who was the valedictorian of the high school. He got a four as well. And when he finally came to me and called me, he asked me what score I'd gotten. And I told him I'd gotten a five. (laughs) He seemed surprised by that. In fact, he didn't believe me at first. I think Bruce had a lot more trouble believing that I got a five in AP English than he did that God and Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph Smith in a grove in 1820. That he could accept as a matter of faith, but me, he had to actually see the document before he would believe it. Even then, it was difficult for him to mesh into his worldview that Radio Free Mormon got a five in the AP English class and Bruce got only a four. He resolved this in his mind by speculating that he must have gotten a very high four and I must have gotten a very low five. So really, we weren't that far apart. (laughs) We were just on opposite sides of that critical dividing line. But the reason I bring this up is because not only is it a funny story and not only does it allow me to let you know that I'm the only one in my AP English class who got a five on the test, but also because I think it reflects a certain familiarity that I may have had even at that early age with the ideas of simile, metaphor, and symbolism. And I think this stood me in good stead the first time I went through the temple. Okay, so enough background information. Let's get to the temple. It is November. It is 1979. I have already entered the Missionary Training Center, which I believe was on Wednesday, November 14th, 1979. Wednesday was the date that new missionaries showed up at the MTC. And I cannot remember exactly what day of the week the preparation day was. But on preparation day at the MTC, you didn't have to go to classes all day. Well, until the evening, right? At the evening, you had to go back to class. But during the day, you could write letters, you could do laundry. But our district, probably like a lot of other districts, got up super early on preparation day or P-day as we called it. And the first stop was the temple. We would get showered, we'd get dressed, we'd get together in the lobby and we'd head across the street and up the hill to the Provo Temple. And I remember, of course, it's November. It's completely dark out as we're walking up to the temple. The stars are out in the skies. They are hard, they are glittering, they are numerous. It was absolutely gorgeous. And we'd go to the temple every P-day. So it was the first P-day that I was at the MTC that I went to the temple to get out my own endowment. So I'm going there with all these other missionaries. They've already been to the temple to get their endowment. It is not their first time. It's only my first time going to the temple. And I don't have any member of the family. I don't have any special friend who's going with me to show me the ropes or to help me along, really, in any way. So number one, I haven't been a member of the church for a long time, so I'm not steeped in the literalness of Mormonism. Number two, 
I am somewhat familiar with the ideas of simile, metaphor, and symbolism from my AP English class and being in Hamlet. And before I get to number three, let me go back to that number two again because something has just occurred to me. While I was talking about this subject and reflecting on my time in the MTC, as listeners to this program no doubt know, I had been studying dance for three years prior to my entrance into the MTC. In fact, I actually had a large poster of Mikhail Baryshnikov up on the wall of my dorm room in the MTC. I cannot say whether I am the only missionary to have ever had such a poster up on the wall at the MTC, but if there are others, I expect we are extremely few in number. Not only that, in addition to all my studies in Japanese and in the lesson plan and in all the other things that we have to do at the MTC, I took it upon myself to begin to memorize large passages of Shakespeare during my time there. The way this came about was on an early P-Day at the MTC when I and my companion went over to the BYU bookstore and I saw there on the shelves two slim volumes of Shakespeare. They were collections of Shakespeare. One had a collection of Shakespeare's sonnets, the other had a collection of soliloquies and speeches by famous Shakespeare characters in his plays. And I honestly could not tell you when I found time to do this, but I do know that even during the MTC, I read through those books and then took the passages and sonnets that I found the most appealing and committed them to memory. On the sonnet side of things, there was of course Shakespeare's most famous Sonnet, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, thou art more lovely and more temperate, rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. I could go on, but I won't. You can thank me later. By the way, I am reciting from memory at this point. If I should mess up a word or two, I hope you will forgive me. But as lovely as the sonnets were, I was drawn mostly to the soliloquies and the speeches in this very slim volume. From Romeo and Juliet, but soft what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief, that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. And so on. From Macbeth, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. And so on. From Hamlet, of course, to be or not to be, that is the question, whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing in them. From As You Like It, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages, etc., etc., from Henry V. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. In peace there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger, and so forth. Mark Antony's speech from Julius Caesar. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. From Richard III. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. And all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. And so forth. So, this is a nice trip down memory lane for me. But it also brings to mind the fact that I was so immersed in 
poetry and in literature at the time that probably the experience of attending the endowment did not seem particularly overwhelming to me. It was certainly unusual. It was certainly strange. It was certainly different from anything I'd ever done before, never having been a Mason and never having been a member of a certain club or fellowship, except perhaps for chess club in eighth grade or being on the track team or the cross country team in high school. But those really don't compare very well with what goes on in the temple, do they? Except for my third category of things that I think helped prepare me for the temple endowment. The first was that I had not been raised in the church. The second was my familiarity with symbolism and poetry and literature. And the third was this idea of being a member of a club, a unique club, a special club, a club that only certain people, certain very elite people, certain very select people could be a member of. Now, the LDS church itself is its own club, but the temple is within the LDS church a more secret, a more select club of its own. These are only the most faithful, the most righteous, the most observant Mormons who get to be in the temple club. And that is a club that I was going to get to join on this morning in November 1979, the first time I went to the temple for my endowment in the Provo Temple. Now here I have to give a little bit more background on me. When I was a kid back in Waco, Texas during the 1960s, the thing I wanted most of all was to be a member of a club. There was a certain cachet, a certain excitement that surrounded the idea of being a member of a club. And my big brother, Mark, who was five years older than I was, and his friends, who were similarly older than I was, would have their own club, but I was not allowed to be a member of it because I'm just a kid, right? It was obvious that my big brother, Mark, and his friends knew how badly I wanted to be a member of their club. They even had a tree house down at a friend's house in the backyard. His name was Mike May. He lived in the same neighborhood, but that tree house was the headquarters of their club. And I wanted to be a member of that club more than I could possibly describe to you. So let me tell you this story, which will give you a hint or two as to how badly I wanted to be a member of that club. One day in Waco, my big brother Mark and his friend Gary Shackelford approached me outside our house and asked me if I wanted to be a member of their club. Well, they knew perfectly well I was dying to be a member of their club, so I said, sure I do. And they told me, well, there's only one thing. You have to go through an initiation first. And I said, well, what's the initiation? By the way, I've got to be six years old at this time. I say, what's the initiation? I'll do it. I'll do anything. And my big brother tells me, well, you have to go down the hill in the Surrey. Now, let me explain to you what that means. First off, the Surrey was this contraption that we had in our family. It hung out in the backyard. Every now and then we would ride around in it. It didn't get a lot of use, but it was a strange contraption. So let me try and describe it here for you so you can understand what it looked like because that will make a lot more sense out of the story that follows. If you've ever seen a regular Surrey, and by that I mean the kind that is pulled by horses, you know it's sort of like a buggy. And there are two benches in it, one in the back, or one in the center I should say, and one in the front. And there is a canopy above it, there are four wheels to it, it's sort of like a highfalutin kind of wagon for horses to pull around. Well, this Surrey had the same kind of structure, it had four wheels, it had two benches, it had a canopy over the top, but it was not pulled by horses. Instead, it was driven in the same way that a person would drive 
a bicycle. Remember, there's a back bench and a front bench, but you have to sit in the back bench in order to drive this Surrey. There are pedals down below that you have to pedal like a bicycle using your feet, and then there's a little steering wheel in front of you that you can use to move the front wheels right or left in order to go where it is that you want to go. And of course, like a bicycle, when you move the pedals, there is a chain that goes around and around to move the back wheels. And that's how you go places in the Surrey. You don't go very fast, obviously. And once again, I have no recollection as to how the Surrey ended up at our house. Obviously, my folks bought it because they thought it was a fun idea or something. But that is the Surrey that my big brother was talking about when he said, you have to go down the hill in the Surrey as part of this initiation process for you to be a member of our club, RFM. Now, the hill was the hill outside of our house. Our house was built at the top of a hill on Mount Rockwood Circle in Waco, Texas. So this street, Mount Rockwood Circle, our house is built really at the top of this hill and from there it goes down the hill and it goes steeper and steeper for a hundred yards or so until at the bottom then it turns right and goes around and back up. That's why it's a circle. That's why it's Mount Rockwood Circle. But basically it's a rather steep hill that at the bottom makes a hard right to go around the corner. That's the hill that my big brother was talking about. And of course, I knew all of this instantly because I lived there. I knew about the Surrey. I knew about the hill. So when he said, you have to go down the hill in the Surrey, I knew that that was something that I would definitely do. I would have cut off my right arm to be a member of the club. Going down the hill in the Surrey, no problem. I did not give it a second thought. So I said, absolutely, I will. We got the Surrey out of the backyard. We brought it around to the front of the house and situated it in the street on Mount Rockwood Circle at the top of this hill. I dutifully got in the back seat where the pedals are and my big brother gave me a helpful shove to start me down the hill. And I swear to you, as I began going down the hill slowly at first, I heard my big brother and his friend Gary laughing as they rode off on their Schwinn bicycles. They didn't even hang around to watch what was going to happen. So as you might imagine, gravity being what it is, and hills being what they are, and Surrey's being what they were, <laughs> I started off slowly at first, but rapidly began gaining speed as I'm going down the hill in the Surrey, down the middle of a residential neighborhood road. And obviously, when I started, there were no cars coming up the hill, but at any point during my travels down the hill, a car could have come around the corner at the bottom, and that would have made this story even worse than it ended up being. But fortunately, no cars figure into this story. No cars came around the corner at the bottom, but still, I'm gaining speed, and now I'm getting toward halfway down the hill. I'm really, really picking up speed now, and the pedals below my feet because I have my feet raised up. I don't have my feet on the pedals. That would have been a good idea if I had thought of that at the beginning. That would have given me some control. But instead, I let them spin faster and faster and faster until the pedals themselves are a blur. They're going so fast. Did I mention that this Surrey has no brakes on it? I don't know who made the design, but they didn't think it was important to have any brakes on this Surrey. So there are no brakes. There's nothing that I can use to slow this Surrey down. The only thing I could possibly do to slow the Surrey down is to stop those pedals from going so fast. And as I mentioned, they're a blur at this time. I have my feet raised up above them, and I now, beginning to panic, shoved my six-year-old feet down into those churning pedals. Oh, by the way, did I mention I didn't have any shoes on? <laughs> 
Yeah, this is summertime in Waco, Texas, and being a six-year-old, all I did was run around barefoot. Regardless of poisonous snakes, regardless of poisonous spiders, regardless of cactus, regardless of scorpions, regardless of tarantulas, regardless of all the things in Texas that maybe might make it a good idea not to go barefoot, yes, I went barefoot anyway. So back to my predicament in the Surrey, I shove my feet, my bare feet down into these whirring pedals and my feet get forcibly kicked out by the motion of the pedals. And believe me, that hurt. That was the first thing that was going to hurt on me during that ride was my feet. So I know now that I cannot get my feet into the pedals to slow this Surrey down. I'm in for the ride of my life. At some point, the wheels and the pedals are going around so fast that the chain actually snaps and begins lashing up at me from below. So I have to lift my feet up way high to keep them from being hit by the lashing chain. I'm starting to think that maybe I didn't want to be a member of that club this badly after all. The Surrey keeps going faster and faster. It gets to the bottom of the hill. As I'm approaching the turn at the bottom, I start realizing some elementary things about physics. The first is that if I continue straight, I'm going to hit the curb, go up over somebody's yard, and run into the side of their house. The only other option is to turn the steering wheel hard right at the bottom of the hill, which is going to mean that I'm probably not going to make that turn, but I'm going to capsize in the street. But given those two choices, and not given a lot of time to make my decision, I got to the bottom of the hill, I cranked the steering wheel hard right, and this whole Surrey slammed down on its left side and went skidding across the street with me in it. Actually, I don't know if I was thrown by this time, but it ended up skidding across the street and against the curb where it finally came to a rest. I had been thrown at some point. I ended up in a similar location as I skidded and bounced across the asphalt and similarly ended up in the gutter against the curb. Well, this was certainly a painful experience for me. I managed to pick myself up. Nothing was broken, thankfully. No cars had come around the corner, but my clothes were all torn, and I had a number of places on my body that were developing a healthy case of road rash. And these areas initially looked white, where I had scraped across the asphalt. But as I stood up and looked down, I could see that rapidly thereafter, the white was being replaced by red that was oozing through the white. So as I say, I picked myself up, and now I had to make the long walk back up the hill to the house. I finally made it up the hill. I went to the front door of our house, and I think the front door must have been locked because I did not simply open it and go inside. Instead, I rang the front doorbell. My mother, who was home, came to the front door, took one look at me, and became somewhat hysterical over the bloody sight of her youngest and dearest. After that, I don't remember too much about what happened, although I am certain that my big brother got in a lot of trouble over the incident, about which I am sure I took no small satisfaction. But once again, I tell you that story to tell you how important it was to me, at least as a kid. And right now, I'm only 19 when I'm in Provo at the MTC, right? When I was 19, it seemed like a long time between 6 and 19. Now looking back at it from this perspective, it wasn't that long at all. I still had these desires to be a member of a club, a special club, an elite club. And going to the temple was going to finally allow me to scratch that itch. The first thing we did at the temple was we went through washings and anointings. Of course, I was going through the first time. I had to get my own washings and anointings. And while we were down there doing washings and anointings, the temple workers needed a couple of guys to be there to do more washings and anointings for the dead. So I volunteered to do that. My companion volunteered to be with me. So I ended up getting not only my own washing and anointing, but about 20 more before I went on to the endowment. 
This was in the days when you were naked underneath a poncho. And I know this isn't going to sound very exciting to you, but I had no problem with it. This was not something where I thought, well, this is weird. I was not touched inappropriately. It all seemed very sacred, very somber, very important, and a lot less painful as an initiatory rite than going down the hill in the Surrey and Waco. In retrospect, that was actually my favorite part, I think, of going through the temple was the washings and anointings. There was something about it that struck me as very ancient and something that I connected with the time period of Moses in the Old Testament. I came to think of it as having a unique spirit to it, which I termed the spirit of Moses. I'd never heard that term before in the church. I've never heard it since. It's one that I came up with as best I could to give a label to what it was I was feeling during the washings and anointings. But having done about 20 of those before I got upstairs for my endowment, my hair was pretty slicked down with multiple applications and anointings of oil by the time I got there. So once again, I'm doing this for the first time. I don't think anybody else in the company is doing it for the first time. My companion's not doing it for the first time. Nobody else in my district is doing it for the first time. It's just me, and I really don't have anybody to help me along through this. But I did the best I could under the circumstances. At the beginning of the endowment, we were all seated in our respective places, and I still remember to this day hearing the voice that comes over the speaker system talking about the endowment and giving the introduction to the endowment. And as part of that introduction, it told me, as well as everybody else who was present, but it told me that I was going to be making some very serious covenants at the temple and that God would hold me responsible for following those covenants in the temple and that God would not be happy if I did not follow those covenants that I was going to make in the temple because God would not be mocked. And yet, I had absolutely no idea what the nature was of the covenants that I was going to be required to make in the temple. And then I remember hearing this voice say that at the very beginning of the endowment, if I did not want to enter into those covenants that I did not know what they were of my own free will and choice, then I could leave now. I could raise my hand and let the people running the endowment know, the temple workers know, that I did not want to take on those covenants and then I could be taken out of the temple. Well, I remember feeling that that was a bit odd. It was like signing a blank contract with somebody where you say, just sign your name on the bottom and I'll fill in all the details of the contract later. Even at 19, that seemed a little bit odd and I felt a bit of a pinch over this issue. But really, what am I going to do? I'm in Provo, Utah. I'm at the MTC. There's no way that I really have any free will and choice to back out of this endowment now. That's simply not an option. So of course, I did not raise my hand in spite of the small degree of trepidation I felt regarding the circumstances. Like I say, I don't want to make too big a deal about how I felt about it, but there definitely was a pinch there. It wasn't a huge trepidation, but there was some small degree of trepidation. Yes, I have to admit that. And here's the language that I heard over the speaker's system that caused me this concern. If you proceed and receive your full endowment, you will be required to take upon yourselves sacred obligations, the violation of which will bring upon you the judgment of God. For God will not be mocked. If any of you desire to withdraw, rather than accept these obligations of your own free will and choice, you may now make it known by raising your hand. That is the exact language that I heard back in November of 1979 and why it was that it caused me concern because I had no idea what those sacred obligations that I was going to be taking upon myself were only that if I violated them, it would bring on me the judgments of God. So that's pretty important stuff, don't you think? 
And actually, I have to laugh now when it says, if any of you desire to withdraw rather than accept these obligations of your own free will and choice, you may now make it known by raising your hand. Well, this is a classic example, isn't it, of the illusion of agency. I just did a two-part podcast titled The Illusion of Agency, and here it comes into play again in what is the most sacred and important place and structure in the LDS Church, the temple of God. Why is it an illusion of agency? Because it says right there that if you don't want to go forward and receive your endowment of your own free will and choice, then you can opt out right there. But this is simply an illusion. I could not really opt out. I mean, theoretically, yeah, I could have raised my hand and said, okay, I don't want to be here, which means I'm now going to have to raise my hand in front of everybody in my district, everybody who's in the temple session. I'm going to now be what? I can't go to the MTC anymore, can I? I can't go on my mission. I have to receive my endowment in order to go on my mission. That's the whole point, right? So I have no real choice if I'm going to go forward on my mission than to go through with this endowment and accept whatever these obligations are, regardless of the fact that I have no idea what they are before I am put under those obligations. And this happens not just with missionaries, but what about people who are going to the temple to be married? And they're receiving their endowment prior to getting married. Because in the LDS Church, marriage is a more sacred ordinance in the temple than the endowment. And by that, I simply mean that one has to have their endowment before they can be married in the temple. So many people are going to the temple to receive their endowment prior to being married. Well, what kind of free will and choice do they really have to opt out of getting their endowment? If they opt out of getting their endowment, that means that they can't get married in the temple as they were planning. Presumably, they've got friends and family all there for the happy occasion. So really, the free will and choice there is also an illusion. This is one of the many ways in which the church gives the illusion of free will and choice to its members while manipulating the situation in such a way as to hedge in the choice the members can really make so that the members make the choice that the church wants them to make. Now I should add here that there is actually a coercive element to the manner in which the temple endowment gets its patrons to enter into these covenants. Sure, it says at the very beginning that you're going to enter into these covenants of your own free will and choice, and if you don't want to do that before you even know what they are, you can raise your hand now and opt out of the temple endowment ceremony. But this is like a prenuptial agreement between spouses entered into before they get married. And it has been held as a matter of law that a prenuptial agreement that is entered into the day before the marriage is sort of sprung on the bride the day before the marriage when everything is ready to go and the wedding is set and the dresses are bought and the church is rented and the relatives have flown out. That under such circumstances, a prenuptial agreement sprung on a bride the day before the wedding can be thrown out of court as invalid because it was signed under duress or coercion. In the same way, the covenants that are entered into in the temple endowment can be seen as being invalid under the law because they are entered into under duress or coercion. Well, some members may look at that and say, this is not man's law, this is God's law, and God's law is higher than man's law. Well, I have no objection to God's law being higher than man's law. It is only when God's law appears to be lower than man's law, that I have a problem. And these covenants that one ends up making in the temple are not small things. There are actually five different laws that are explained to people receiving their endowment, and then they are put under covenant, solemn oath, to obey those laws. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about what those covenants are. But before I do that, I want to talk about the two different lines of thought that exist in the LDS Church about what can be talked about regarding 
the temple and the temple endowment and what goes on there. There is one line of thought that says that anything that happens in the temple is sacred. It is so sacred that we have to keep it secret. We don't talk about anything that goes on outside the temple. What happens in the temple stays in the temple. And then there's another line of thought that says, no, really, you can talk about anything that happens in the temple as long as you're reverent about it, of course, right? And as long as you're not taking out ads in the newspaper about it. But as long as you're reverent about it, you can talk about anything that happens in the temple except those specific things that you covenant to keep secret, to not reveal, that happen in the temple. And those things specifically, if you look at the text of the temple endowment, there are only a handful of things that you're not supposed to talk about and not reveal. And those have to do with the names, the signs, and the tokens that are received by every member who goes through the temple endowment. And there are several names, there are several signs, and there are several tokens. And in my day back in 1979, there were also penalties. The penalties were removed from the temple endowment in 1990, but back in 1979, they were still there. And I was also put under oath not to talk about or reveal the penalties either. Now I'm going to disappoint you once again, I fear, because many people who went through the temple were disturbed by the penalties. The penalties represent different ways in which life can be taken. And basically you pantomime different ways of killing yourself. And the covenant is that rather than reveal the name, signs, tokens, and penalties, you would suffer your life to be taken. Now, there is a distinction there. It's not saying that if you reveal the names, signs, tokens, and penalties that you're going to get killed. No, it says that rather than reveal those names, signs, tokens, and penalties, you would rather die. You would suffer your life to be taken before you would reveal those things. But those are the specific things that you are not supposed to reveal outside the temple. And according to the text of the temple endowment itself and the second line of thought that I've been talking about in Mormonism, those are the things that you're not to talk about outside the temple. Anything else is fair game. Now, let me give you an example of both of these lines of thoughts, and then I'm going to get to the text of the covenants that I took upon myself in the temple and that every member takes upon themselves in the temple before they even know what it is that they're getting into. Remember, you have your choice to opt out before you have any idea what these covenants are, only that they are very solemn, very sacred, and God is not going to be happy with you if you end up breaking them after you've entered into them. The first line of thought about not talking really about anything that goes on in the temple comes from the newest changes that were made in the temple at the very beginning of the year 2019. So that's been about a year and a half ago now. There were certain changes that were made in the temple endowment, a lot of them positive changes, a lot of them changes that brought women onto a more equal footing with men than they had been previously. And as part of those changes, the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve added an introduction to the temple endowment. And in that introduction, they talk about the fact that there are going to be certain changes that you will see in the endowment. Now that you're going through it and there's changes made, you'll notice these changes that have been made. But don't worry about it. There's always been changes made to the temple. It's done by revelation. It's done by God. Everything's fine. Don't freak out. This is the way it's supposed to be. And of course, this is there to assure those members who might think, well, wait a second, if the endowment was originally given by God, why does it have to be changed now? That seems strange to some Mormons. So this introduction is there, number one, to make sure that they don't worry about that, that they don't fret their pretty little heads about it, because this was done by revelation and everything is still going according to plan. Now, the second part of this introduction is to admonish 
all the members of the church who go through this temple endowment, that they are not to talk about these changes with anybody else. In other words, the secrecy about what happens in the temple is being stressed here. Remember, this is that first line of thought, that you're really not supposed to talk about anything that goes on in the temple. And in this introduction, they say that you are not to talk about these changes to the temple endowment. And in fact, you're not even supposed to talk about the fact that there have been changes at all. So that is definitely a secrecy far above and beyond what is represented in the actual text of the endowment itself. And let me play that tape for you here. I think I have it. Let me play that tape so you can hear the introduction from the new Temple Endowment, January of 2019, for yourself. Play the tape. Before beginning the endowment session, we share the following statement from the First Presidency of the Church. Brothers and sisters, since the Temple Endowment was first administered in this dispensation, occasional adjustments have been made by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, acting unitedly in their capacity as prophets, seers, and revelators. Upon seeking the will of the Lord and after solemn prayer in the upper room of the Salt Lake Temple, the Lord has again revealed inspired adjustments to the temple ceremonies. These adjustments, which you will notice during your worship experience in the temple today, will bring harmony to the way men and women make covenants with God. They deepen our understanding of His will and His relationship with His daughters and sons. These modifications do not affect the sacred and eternal covenants associated with the saving and exalting ordinances of the temple. As a reminder, due to the sacred nature of all temple ordinances, the fact and the content of these changes should not be discussed outside of the temple. May you feel the Lord's love as you serve in his holy house. Now, the second line of thought that anything can be talked about the temple except for the name signs, tokens, penalties you don't have to worry about too much anymore, I guess, since they were done away with, pardon the pun, 30 years ago. But interestingly, that second line of thought was mentioned by none other than Elder Bednar, and he mentioned it in General Conference, and he mentioned it in the very next General Conference after those changes were made and after that new introduction that I just played for you, was placed at the beginning of the endowment. Elder Bednar seems to hold a different view on the subject. And he takes time out of his talk, which is really dealing with a different matter, in order to stress this because obviously he thinks it's important to let the saints know that yes, you can talk about what goes on in the temple, except for those very specific parts that you covenant not to reveal, as long as you do it respectfully and all these other caveats. But mainly, he is promoting David Bednar, of all people, is promoting this more open, more transparent attitude toward what goes on in the temple. Indeed, temple preparation is most effective in our homes. But many church members are unsure about what they appropriately can and cannot say regarding the temple experience outside of the temple. President Ezra Taft Benson described why this uncertainty exists. Quote, the temple is a sacred place, and the ordinances in the temple are of a sacred character. Because of its sacredness, we are sometimes reluctant to say anything about the temple to our children and grandchildren. As a consequence, many do not develop a real desire to go to the temple, or when they go there, they do so without much background to prepare them 
for the obligations and covenants they enter into. President Benson continues, I believe a proper understanding or background will immeasurably help prepare our youth for the temple and will foster within them a desire to seek their priesthood blessings just as Abraham sought his." Close quote. Two basic guidelines can help us achieve the proper understanding emphasized by President Benson. Guideline number one, because we love the Lord, we always should speak about His holy house with reverence. We should not disclose or describe the special symbols associated with the covenants we receive in sacred temple ceremonies. Neither should we discuss the holy information that we specifically promise in the temple not to reveal. Guideline number two, the temple is the house of the Lord. Everything in the temple points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We may discuss the basic purposes for and the doctrine of and the principles associated with temple ordinances and covenants. Now, this is very interesting to me because even though the introduction to the New Temple Endowment talks about the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles have all agreed on this, yet Elder Bednar stands before the Church and the other general authorities at the very next General Conference in April of 2019, and while he's speaking to the audience, I also hear him speaking to the other leaders, basically letting them know that he doesn't totally agree with his super-secret attitude about what goes on in the Temple and the changes to the Temple, and even keeping hidden the fact that there have been changes at all. He seems to have a different opinion. Now, how is it that Elder Bednar, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, could have a different opinion from what is represented in the introduction to the New Temple Endowment? I mean, the new introduction talks about the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. He's a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. Didn't he vote for that? Didn't he sign on for that language? Why is he representing a different opinion, apparently, in General Conference April 2019? Well, the reason for that, as I mentioned, this has been a couple years ago, so I wouldn't blame you for not remembering, but in Hugh B. Brown's autobiography, where he talks about his calling to be an apostle, he talks about the charge that is given to the apostles. And one of those charges is this, that in meetings with the apostles, you are encouraged to speak your mind, to give full scope to your feelings, your thoughts, your beliefs, the way you think things should be done. But ultimately, after everybody's had a chance to express their opinions, a vote is taken. And if you end up being in the minority, okay, the majority is going to carry the day. If you end up being in the minority, then it is your obligation as an apostle to proceed and present to the outside world as if you had been in favor of the majority position all along in order to give this presentation and facade of unity to the world, that indeed all the leaders of the church are united and unanimous on whatever decision the church makes. What happens behind the scenes, as revealed by Hubie Brown, is different, that that is simply an illusion. The majority carries the day, and those who did not vote with the majority have to present to the membership as if they had voted for the majority opinion in the first place. So perhaps, and this is speculative, but it's an interesting situation that we're dealing with. Perhaps Elder Bednar 
did not vote with the majority as to the language that is now used in the introduction of the new temple endowment about the fact you're supposed to be so secret about what goes on in the temple. You're not supposed to talk about the changes themselves. You're not even supposed to talk about the fact that there have been changes. So he's in the minority there. He has to go along with the majority because that's what you do as an apostle in the LDS church. But now we come to the very next general conference, his very next opportunity to speak to the general membership. And he wants to signal to the membership as well as to the leaders behind him. I mean, I'm sure the leaders behind him already know because he voted and expressed his opinion differently than what the majority did in whatever meetings took place regarding the language in the new temple endowment introduction. But now he's going to present to the church and let them know that he has a different opinion and that really you can talk about anything that goes on in the temple except for the name, signs, and tokens. Once again, this reminds me of a friend of mine telling me some years ago that general conference is not an opportunity for the leaders of the church to talk to the members as much as it is a chance for the leaders of the church to talk to the other leaders of the church. My friend said that oftentimes church apostles might as well get up there at the pulpit, turn their back on the audience, and just address the leaders of the church directly because as often as not, that's actually what they're doing. Okay, so having said that, and going along with this second line of thought as enunciated by Elder Bednar in April 2019 General Conference, I feel comfortable talking with you about what these different covenants are that are made by members of the church at the temple and the covenants that I made back in November of 2019 when I was going through the temple in Provo for my own endowment. And lest there be any among my audience who are concerned about my talking about the different covenants made in the temple, Elder Bednar gives me a green light to talk about that as well. Now, brothers and sisters, across the generations from the Prophet Joseph Smith to President Russell M. Nelson, the doctrinal purposes of temple ordinances and covenants have been taught extensively by church leaders. Because the nature of the covenants have been discussed extensively by church leaders publicly, according to Elder Bednar, I feel little compunction about going into them here. In fact, Elder Bednar goes on to talk about the exact names of the five covenants that one enters into in the temple. Information also is available about following the Savior by receiving and honoring covenants to keep the law of obedience, the law of sacrifice, the law of the gospel the law of chastity, and the law of consecration. And indeed, those are the names of the five covenants that one enters into in the temple endowment. These are the covenants that you don't really know the details on, the fine print of, prior to making those covenants. And you are only given the opportunity of your own free will and choice to opt out of entering into those covenants prior to finding out exactly what those covenants entail and prior to entering into those covenants. I'm not going to go into the details of all of these different covenants. But I will say that generally, what these covenants entail are vows of absolute and complete fealty to the LDS Church and its leaders. We covenant to never say anything bad about the leaders of the church. We covenant to do everything the leaders of the church tell us to do. We covenant to sacrifice everything that we have up to and including our lives, if necessary, for the LDS Church. And finally, we covenant to give everything that we have to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So these temple covenants, as you can see, are pretty much all-encompassing. The first covenant, about not saying anything bad about leaders of the church, 
comes under the heading of the law of the gospel. Now, the law of the gospel is an interesting law and covenant in the LDS temple because the nature of the law of the gospel is never spelled out. In other words, you take a covenant to follow the law of the gospel, but you're never told what the law of the gospel actually is. But in addition to the law of the gospel are given certain other charges or directives or covenants that you enter into. And one of those is to avoid all evil speaking of the Lord's anointed. That's the part where we take a vow to never say anything bad about the leaders of the church. It is understood by most members of the church, I think, that the Lord's anointed are the leaders of the church. The two terms are synonymous. Here is the part of the temple where this covenant is given. We are required to give unto you the law of the gospel. This is what everybody who goes to the temple and I going to the temple for the first time was instructed as part of the temple endowment. We are required to give unto you the law of the gospel as contained in the Book of Mormon and the Bible. To give unto you also, see this is in addition to the law of the gospel, the law of the gospel is never really explained, to give unto you also a charge to avoid all light-mindedness, loud laughter, (laughs) loud laughter. I think I violated that covenant a number of times on this podcast alone. To avoid all light-mindedness, loud laughter, evil speaking of the Lord's anointed. See, that's where that covenant to not say anything bad about the leaders of the church comes in. Also, the taking of the name of God in vain and every other unholy and impure practice and to cause you to receive these by covenant. The covenant to do everything that you are told by the leaders of the church comes in under the law of obedience. Here is the language of that covenant from the temple endowment. You and each of you solemnly covenant and promise before God, angels, and these witnesses at this altar that you will obey the law of God and keep his commandments. Now, once again, what the law of God is, is never expressly detailed in the temple endowment. However, Faithful Mormons, i.e. those who qualify to go to the temple in the first place, faithful Mormons generally understand that because the leaders of the church speak for God, whatever they tell us to do is what God is telling us to do, and therefore what they tell us to do becomes de facto the law of God. When we covenant to obey the law of God, we are effectively covenanting to do everything that the leaders of the church tell us to do. When it comes to sacrificing everything for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that comes in, unsurprisingly enough, under the law of sacrifice. The law of sacrifice is described as follows. As Jesus Christ has laid down his life for the redemption of mankind, so we should covenant to sacrifice all that we possess, even our own lives if necessary, in sustaining and defending the kingdom of God. By the way, the kingdom of God is a synonymous expression for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If that's not clear enough to the patrons of the temple, it will be made clear enough when we get to the law of consecration. And then, as with each of the other five laws, the temple patrons raise their right arm to the square and then take the following oath. You and each of you solemnly covenant and promise before God, angels, and these witnesses at this altar that you will observe and keep the law of sacrifice as contained in the Old and New Testaments, as it has been explained to you. Each of you bow your head and say, yes. And everybody bows their head and says, yes. So there's the law of sacrifice. The covenant to sacrifice everything that we have in sustaining and defending the kingdom of God. Finally, let's get to the law of consecration. The law of consecration has some overlap with the law of sacrifice, and yet the law of consecration means that we will give everything that we have, whether it's our time, our talents, our possessions, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Here's the language of that covenant. Peter is addressing the congregation 
In other words, all the people who are at the temple endowment. We are instructed to give unto you the law of consecration, as contained in the book of Doctrine and Covenants, in connection with the law of the gospel and the law of sacrifice, which you have already received. It is, here's the explanation, it is that you do consecrate yourselves, your time, talents, and everything with which the Lord has blessed you or with which he may bless you to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for the building up of the kingdom of God on the earth and for the establishment of Zion. So then everybody enters into that covenant with the same kind of language and the same kind of procedure as the other five covenants. Here we can see that if there was any question in the minds of somewhat dull Latter-day Saints, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the kingdom of God. And we are covenanting to consecrate ourselves, not just what we have, not just our time and our talents, but our very selves. It is that you do consecrate yourselves, your time, talents, and everything with which the Lord has blessed you or with which he may bless you to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for the building up of the kingdom of God on the earth and for the establishment of Zion. Each of you bow your head and say yes, and everybody bows their head and says yes, because what else are you going to do? So that is why I say that the thumbnail version of these five different covenants that one makes in the temple endowment have to do with never saying anything bad about the leaders of the church, doing everything the leaders of the church tell you to do, sacrificing everything that you have for the church, up to and including your very lives if necessary, and consecrating everything to the LDS church. Not only your time, your talents, all of your possessions, but even your very selves to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You are basically signing your entire life away on the dotted line. And some might think that before you enter into a covenant like this, before God and angels and these witnesses at this altar, that maybe it would be fair to know about what it is those covenants are before you are thrust into making them in the middle of your first temple endowment session. And yet, as we have seen, that is not, repeat not, the case. Once again, this falls under the general rubric of the illusion of agency. We're told at the beginning of the temple that we have the freedom to choose whether we will take upon ourselves these covenants, these all-encompassing covenants, and if we choose not to, then we can raise our hand and have somebody take us out of the endowment session at the beginning before it really even starts, and certainly before we know what the content of these covenants is. But once you go past that point and do not raise your hand, then you are in for the ride of your lives. And these are the covenants that President Nelson and other current leaders of the church are very quick to remind us, which they do often, that we need to stick to the covenant path. We have taken upon ourselves these covenants, whether it be by hook or by crook, we have taken these covenants and now we need to live by them. Because who wants to be a covenant breaker, right? There's the guilt, there's the shame, there's the manipulation that comes in. And that's what I hear every time I hear a church leader admonish the members of the church to stay on the covenant path. Now, as you know, I did a two-part episode dealing with the subject, the illusion of agency in the LDS Church, how the LDS Church says that all of its members have the freedom to choose, that the freedom to choose is really the most important principle at the very heart and foundation of the LDS Church, and yet that agency becomes an illusion when the leaders of the church engage in a number of different mechanisms and strategies to force the member of the church to do what it is the church wants them to do. And the temple endowment is a classic example of this type of illusion of agency. Back when I was doing that two-part podcast, 
a number of listeners wrote comments regarding the temple and why it is that they thought that this subject needed to be addressed when I was talking about the illusion of agency. And so in response to that public demand, I have done so here. Here is what Marin Latham said on June 6, 2020. This is a post on the RadioFreeMormon.org website regarding my first podcast on the illusion of agency. I think this is such an important topic for you to cover, and I am so glad you have decided to take it on, Marin writes. I hope you will use as an example the temple. Well, I just did, and you're welcome, Marin. I think it is the ultimate manifestation of this illusion of agency. You don't get to know beforehand what you are agreeing to. You are given a choice, in quotation marks, you are given a choice at the beginning of the ceremony to leave, but there is immense social pressure to stay. I mean, for most people, you're either about to get married and you have family that have flown in from all over expectantly waiting either outside or in the temple. Or you're about to go on a mission, which you've been preparing for all your life. Yes, that was my situation exactly. Everyone is expecting this of you. And if you don't do it, you'll basically be a second-class Mormon that no good woman will ever want to marry. You have this one chance right at the beginning to leave, and if you stay, you're basically signing your name in blood to all of it before ever being allowed to read the contract. Marin Latham goes on, I think this experience is so hardcore that we have to be primed all our lives with all of the other trespasses against our agency to go along with this. I am surprised more ex-Mormons don't talk about it. My temple experience shocked me so much that it was the reason I ultimately left the church. For me, this was the moment when the mask of the church was finally removed and I saw it for what it really was. But I just think that if most people could fully and with clear eyes know beforehand what happens in the temple, how weird it is, and what they have to agree to, they would never do it. I also think most people wouldn't do it if their own family wasn't right there with them lending legitimacy to the whole experience. So many tricks have to be in play for this to work, and I think all of the temple conditioning starts at a very young age. That was Marin Latham's comment. So these are the types of comments I have received from listeners to this program and the reason that I decided to devote an entire episode to my first experience with the temple endowment, and which I have titled, The Temple and me. Well, that is about enough for tonight. I see that I'm running long. I have many, many other thoughts regarding the Temple Endowment, which have come to me while preparing for this podcast. And what I have decided to do, if there is enough demand among my listeners, is to put all those different thoughts and ideas together in a separate podcast, which I will style as a movie review of the Temple Endowment. Wouldn't that be interesting to actually have a movie review of the Temple Endowment. I'm not sure that's been done before, but I think it's high time. Anyway, I want to close tonight by saying that when I got to work this morning, by the way, today's date that I am recording this is July 15th, 2020. And when I got to work this morning, I had a message on my phone. To put this in context, I live in Western Washington, in the general Seattle area. Not too many days ago, there was a horrible accident in downtown Seattle on I-5. There were a number of protesters who were out on I-5 protesting at about 2 o'clock in the morning, and a car came zooming by and hit two of the protesters, killing one of them and seriously injuring the other. So it was in this context that I received the following message this morning 
when I got to the office. I'm going to play this message for you now, but I will delete identifying information of the caller and of yours truly. Play the tape. July 14th, 4.49 p.m. Phone number attached. Hey, um, got your got your name. From, um, I have a problem I need some help with. I live down in, uh, um, I was in Seattle last weekend, and I ran over a guy. Well, I thought he was riding a horse. It turns out he was riding a, a tapir, actually, across the street. Again, I thought it was a horse, but it was, it was a tapir, and I... I ran him down. I know I was at fault, but I definitely, I don't want to go to spirit prison for this. So I'd love to engage your services. I'll pay whatever, whatever you charge. Um, hey, man, I'm just teasing. I'm a huge fan, huge fan recently um, left the church. I would love to take you to dinner sometime. So uh, give me a shout. This is my number. So now, having heard that message that was left for me this morning, I've got to tell you that I was very intently taking down notes as I listened to it. I'm wondering, does this have to do with the horrible accident on I-5 several days ago in Seattle? But when the caller finally got to the word tapir, that's when I lost it. I laughed loud. I laughed long. I laughed hard. Once again, violating that particular oath and covenant that I made in the temple back in November of 1979. That's about all for tonight. Until next time... This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.